everyone, and welcome back to another episode on the Behind the Stigma podcast. I'm Ciara Minova, the host, and in today's episode, we are going into virtual reality and cognitive health. Our guest speaker today, who I'm delighted to introduce, is Amir Bazarzadeh. Amir is a market researcher, games publisher, and tech writer currently working at the intersection of frontier tech and social impact. He has co-founded several startups in the social impact, gaming, and emerging technology space. Amir is currently the co-founder and CEO of VirtuLeap, a company that designs VR brain training solutions to help increase attention levels and address cognitive illnesses, disorders, and learning challenges, which we'll be getting into today. I'm very excited to deep dive into this topic with him. Amir, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to get into some topics of, of big interest and deep interest for myself. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, firstly, I want to say congratulations on being at the intersection, I guess, of tech, education, and health. I think it's interesting because companies like yours kind of shift the association of VR from like you know, fun video games and entertainment and, you know, amusement park rides and things like that to actual practical and useful tools and possibly even life-changing tools. So yeah, it's very exciting. And I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way in that sense. Yeah. It's, it's strange to be in the virtual reality sector because, well, my background before getting into it, I wrote a lot about it for, for TechCrunch and VentureBeat. So uh, when I launched my startup, it was already with a, a few years of deep dive studying of what the sector is, what it consists of, where does the technology have special powers and where is it just kind of a trinket, so to speak. And um, you also know and are, are aware of increasingly that there's many, many people behind you uh, in terms of history uh, to, the, to the technology. You know, it's uh, in the 80s, even with Terrence McKenna, Timothy Leary were big onto VR. In the 90s, uh, some of our most important advisors on our scientific advisory, uh, Albert Skip Rizzo of, of UCLA, Walter Greenleaf of Stanford VR. These are these are people who are doing the things we're trying to do right now back in the 90s. So there's like three, four generations of it. And anyone in the VR sector, they call it like doggy years. It feels like even though I've been in the sector about seven or eight years, it feels like 20. <laughs> I love how you mentioned uh, Terrace McKenna and Timothy Leary, two guys I love, and but I had actually no idea they're, they were into the VR space, but I could totally see that now that, you, now that you mentioned it. Yeah, no, I wanted to say, like, if you consider what VR really is and its special powers, it's transcending space and time. It's the groovy stuff that actually matters. It's the, you know, what are those two gentlemen... What were they interested in? Were they interested in just uh, going out into the Amazonian forest and having a good buzz? Or were they into being astronauts, you know, traveling into transcendent realms and so on? And, and that's what VR really at its essence is all about. So my, I'm not very popular in the sector, I have to admit, because I don't really have an interest in VR for VR's sake. I have no interest in using VR to... Uh, you know, be immersed in killing zombies. I don't want to waste my life um, in digital spaces more than I have to. VR has a role to play as a digital format for very specific use cases to actually help us live our actual real lives better. It's It really is like, I'm all about that. What is the critical application of this technology? Anything else I don't have much time for. Mm, it's almost like, tapping into realms of different realities to kind of help stay grounded or help you in your actual and real reality. So how come you then went into brain health or let's say the industry of neuroscience and cognitive disorders? Was this more from like a personal interest or was it because you saw the demand in like mental health interventions or, you know, the lack, I would say, actually of interventions or treatment for many um, neurological or even cognitive disorders? I think we're, we're going down a really interesting path in which I'm personally not, I'm personally very happy that I'm not going to be alive in the next generation. It, you know, the, the way that technology is being wielded increasingly to deteriorate our sustained attention skills where 
I see some kids now not having the patience to even watch a 30-minute Netflix show. I mean, forget three hours in a row of something. Their dopamine systems are being deteriorated so that they need to get a hit every 30 seconds or something. And I don't see that dwindling down. I see that accelerating. And I call it the cognition crisis increasingly. I think in the last six months, I've been trying to become one of those political slogan people where you just say something over and over again, cognition crisis. And then you start (laughs) hearing uh, CNN using it. The cognition crisis is underway. (laughs) And I do see that. And so when I go with what can technology help us with as a critical use case, then neuroplasticity is what is causing this big problem for us with technology. And it's also, if we understand it correctly, what can help us rehabilitate to counteract this, this current negative trend. So as, so uh, as far as I see it and virtual reality as a medium that engages multiple human systems in tandem beyond just the, the ones that very, very superficially are engaged when we are typing and tapping on a screen with our fingers and thumbs, when we are engaging our autonomic nervous system, when my feet actually believe this virtual reality environment is real, then neuroplasticity can be engaged at a far higher level that impacts us and helps us as a therapy and a diagnostic and a monitoring tool beyond anything else on the market. So that's what I mean by why VR, why for this cognition area. If, if I had to say what my mission is as an individual and, and VR is just an arbitrary thing that I'm using for that mission, it's to bring us back to a full appreciation of what our attention is and our concentration skills represent. Mm. That's so interesting. And to your point, I I think you're absolutely right. Thank you, TikTok. (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) For all the attention killing. But no, it's so interesting because as we're getting more technologically savvy, as we're advancing and there's no reverse, right? I don't see a world where people would stop using technology. It's only going to it's going to become the other way. So using those tools to actually help us and and not vice versa. how did you then come to create Virtue Leap along with your co-founder? You know, when people are interviewed, there's very few depictions of, of actually what I think the human condition is versus how it's depicted in movies and how people in interviews uh, reflect about their life journey and how they led to, you know, A, B, C, D and why they're where they're where they are and they started giving lectures and teaching people about what they could do to get to where they are. I think that's complete nonsense. I think for the vast majority of people, we're, we're just going from a, we're, we're meandering through a river and we don't have much choice between a lot of the things that lead us to, to X, Y, and Z. We, we do pick up things along the way and they, they can help give us some gravity that leans us like a magnetic force towards where we, you know, most shine or where we're most interested. There is something like that. But for the large extent, if I look retrospectively at my life, the honest truth Mm -hmm. is, is that one thing just led to another. A lot of doors were closed. Some doors opened. I went through the doors that opened. Then those, that door led to other doors. I mean, it's a, it's insanity to, it's a great, it's a great show of narcissism and vanity and pride to talk as if you know what the hell just happened. And when we're on our deathbeds, we can all maybe be a little bit more humble and, you know, be grateful for what we were able to experience. But I don't think uh, volition um, is something. I (laughs) felt something during a program I did in Amsterdam that VR was very cool because I was able to treat my phobia of heights with it. I had a very random encounter in which I was able to use it on myself. That just, you know, instilled that appreciation for what this technology's power represents. And then I got into writing about it as a journalist for about three years. And then it just like neuroplasticity. My brain is now wrapped around the technology. So, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's Pavlovian dogs, uh, (laughs) chemistry at work here too. But yeah, I mean, you have a core interest in you. You start to resonate with things and then you know, you are attracted to those different paths. And VR at first was we wanted, we knew that education and healthcare were two sectors that were very important for the technology. In fact, I think that the only two important categories and by extension, kind of wellness and fitness as secondary uh, areas. But when we first got into it, 
as a startup idea, you, you come in and you have an initial idea. Then you, you, you have that idea exposed to reality, the real world. And the real world goes, this is crap, but here's some aspect of it that does make sense. And you start pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. And you're just basically shape-shifting into something that you know the world's immune system starts to accept. And your reality distortion field as a, as a founder of a company starts to become not much of a distortion field. It's actually being kind of, it's penetrating into uh, reality. I think that's the word, that's the most convoluted answer that I could give you. No, on the contrary, I was going to say that was like so raw and beautifully said. The path is not always linear. That's how we assume things are in life, right? Like we think that success is linear as well or, or whatever it is. You did use one thing, which I think is such an important aspect was that it VR helped you overcome your fear of heights. Um, and once I feel we have like a personal experience embedded into something, we really start believing in that thing or we become int more interested in it because what's more valuable to us than our own personal experiences, right? And so I think that's a amazing touch because that makes it all much more interesting and worthwhile. By the way, I also have a severe fear of heights. So, you know, big congrats to you on that. Like, um, I think we should start contacting Emirates to get VR into the flight world because I think that would generally be a genuinely be like a game changer. I mean, you know, uh, phobias are the main area that even like 25 years ago, they were, they, they were using it and they were since actively using it for phobias like agoraphobia, the fear of people, phobias of arachnoids, uh, uh, you know, vertigo, uh, of course. These are, all, these are all fears that are not conscious. And we overglorify our conscious awareness, this ego we have a nice name to. This is all arbitrary pretend stuff to an aspect of us that is much more much more animalistic and, and, you know, evolutionary speaking, it's like, it's wiring that doesn't really have direct communication channel with the part of me that's a mirror. Like I don't go and I talk to my phobias, right? My mm -hmm. knees start to shake when I'm in that circumstance. And that fear is so visceral. I know you know that because you're saying it's deep. Therefore, you know how much it's like in your work like gut it's in your bones you got that knot when you're stressed out you don't you don't speak to that part of you when you you know um i'm not saying you as in you but let's say someone in one of those movies uh you know did a did a crime or suspected of doing a crime does a lie detector test and then the, the, the maybe they did do it and they're trying to lie or figure out how to cheat the system but there's a part of them that's actually answering in the contrary in the truthfulness the physiology somewhere in there so vr the magical thing about it is that those parts also respond to that, that environment because there's this weird sorcery of VR, which relates to the fact that the visual sense is like about 40% of the brain, I think, is devoted to just the visual sense alone. It's the master sense because of that level of, mm. of priority that the brain um, uh, allocates to it. So when you trick the visual sense, all of the other senses cascade in believing that the experience is real, meaning the vestibular balance system that is so you know connected to my vertigo, it believes it's real. And therefore, we can do all sorts of interesting uh, therapeutic applications like behavioral modification techniques, exposure therapy. Right. That is the way you can treat these horrible, horrible psycho psychiatric conditions in a safe and controlled way. Yeah. Wow. That's absolutely amazing. You mentioned psychiatric conditions. The first time I actually came across VR and particularly was AR and then it went into VR, but as a tool or treatment for mental health condition was when I read a pilot study that was being done at King's College London, where I studied um, on individuals with psychosis. So basically those who hallucinate both um, auditory and visual. And basically in this augmented reality study, patients had to like design an avatar that sounds and looks exactly like the voice of the person that they seen their hallucinations or basically which they attribute their hallucinations to. And then they work with the therapist over like a series of sessions. And the idea is that the avatar's voice changes. And by voice, I don't mean the tonality, but what they say changes. So usually when not everyone, but when some people hallucinate a person or, you know, a voice or an individual generally that person or voice says really horrible things. Um, and so in those sessions, 
that voice actually starts changing. So it becomes more neutral and benevolent, you know? So although these studies are, I guess, still in their early stages, but I think this again comes to show how much potential these technologies have. Um, and in terms of VR, it was a very si similar situation, virtual reality assisted therapy. Um, and they put people in situations exactly like you said, like maybe someone has a fear of going outside. A lot of people who have psychosis tend to isolate themselves. So it's about putting themselves back in like a cafe situation or yeah. even in an elevator, you know, which was one of those studies um, that were done. So it helps people kind of go through something in that virtual world to then help them in in reality. So yeah, it's really is a fascinating technology. But um, I think I don't know, people are, I guess, on one side or the, on the other of it as of now. Yeah, well, I think it comes down to that attention span thing that that's coming across that's we're being impacted by I don't personally think people really care too much about much beyond their closest little thing of their life and their career trajectory. And, and you know, a lot of people in, in where you're living uh, definitely have a certain uh, level of privilege, right? That uh, comfort gives them. They don't really need to worry about much. They have so much idle time that they have, they even fill that idle time with, with false and fantasy. You know, we, we're just troublemakers inside ourselves that we have no space to actually care about bigger scale problems or issues. And, and, and address them even in respect to ourselves. For example, there's a clear connection between depression and attention deficits. You know, when someone has uh, ADHD, they may have a relationship to depression uh, that they're not aware of. You could probably, you know, connect the two dots in, in many cases. And then you try to do things that are developing your attention skills and they actually, you see your depression fade. We, we're not connecting dots in any shape or form. We're hyper focusing on things like glorifying physical uh, body and going to the gym like crazy and looking, I, I've been watching Joe Rogan like clips or, or um, Huberman uh, clips and they're so hardcore focused on supplements. Yeah. They're not even psychological anymore. They're just like thinking of the human as this like, you know, mechanism and they're like we need to increase our testosterone levels and there's yeah. this plant in, in, in ancient Hindu uh, mountains where we can, you know, just manipulate there's no holistic um mm. big kind of way of viewing these problems i that's why i'm saying i'm kind of happy i'm i'm, I'm in this generation <laughs> i don't i don't like where it's going not to say that there aren't the really coolest people out there but there's such a big population right now you can't even if you have a disorder and you want a solution, find maybe that really great doctors that are aware of these techniques that you're mentioning at the, at the mm. bleeding edge. And those doctors don't have like infinite timetables where they can help everybody. So how can you take these amazing technologies or techniques and bring it in a way that's scalable and still high, high quality mm. at scale, right? So that's what VR represents is it can impact multiple human systems in a quality way, in a controlled way, and, and, and in an affordable and excessive way. Yeah. With a lot of, with the diagnostics and disorder language, we, like you said, everything becomes like a mechanism, you know, rather than a holistic approach. And as you said, things are correlated. Things don't exist isolated from one another, right? There's everything that happens in our life are, is connected. So um, that makes a lot of sense. Did you ever have a personal aha moment or experience was it that when your phobia was like when you felt like you you treated that was that like your aha moment it's hard i don't want to lie you know and i don't want to uh blemish the past because you know when you when you're when you're remembering something you're actually reconstructing it you're sure. not actually remembering it and it's you know every seven years they say you're a different person from every cell so the person who literally uh decided to go into this space i'm not him mm. And, and this, uh, you know, I haven't been drinking any alcohol, by the way, or doing any drugs. This is uh, just a <laughs> weird caffeine uh, moment of mine. And I, um, I just know it works now. The person that I'm in right now knows it works for, and it knew it worked there. And it knew, I mean, my vertigo was bad at that point, and it wasn't as much at that time after it. So if you find something that works, when you know that you're not a quack and you're not spreading out quackery, there's a lot of people doing startups and this and that, and out of desperation and neuroses of all various breeds and, and types, people are being phonies and trying to sell everything in any way that they can somehow get their ego on a website. 
and on podcasts like these and stuff. It's a very, it's a very hidden kind of way of approaching it. But as long as I know that I'm not, oh, this is bad. I, I keep on using a term that's actually probably get me sued at one point, like a, a used uh, car salesman. You could say that 20 years ago, but now I think a used car salesman out there will come and like, uh, uh, sue me for it. You know, that's pretty derogatory. <laughs> but you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you could say all oh, sorts no. of stuff. But it's like, you know, someone who's has to lie, right? Yeah. You're like, you're like, you know, the engine's kind of a little screwed up or whatever. You got to blemish it up. You know, you got to hide the blemishes and then, and then, uh, uh, say it. This is not that. This technology is not that. But there are people in my sector, even because I am in the brain training sector, right? You got uh, a lot of companies out there who have been over marketing what brain training even is. Can, can, a, can a normal individual be able to have super memory skills using these mm. techniques and then they can be getting a better job and better salary and finally vindicated as being more special than everybody else? You know, it's like that kind of uh, Jungian selling technique, right? Um, I'm not, again, I'm not popular because I don't want to be that person, but I think you are popular, but well, you, you know, popular, um, in quotation marks, um, you, I don't think you want to be quite a popular in this world. That's certainly the case. I think, I think peace of mind and, and all these things are really at their highest when you have uh, anonymity. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I feel like you're into psychoanalysis. I, I've heard you use unconscious a few times, ego, um, neurosis, and now Jung. I was like, he's definitely into psychoanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, it's the most meaningful part of my life. Uh, the, the, uh, maybe call Jung, uh, not, not so much anymore, but um, everything that relates to understanding that you didn't start off as a clean slate by the moment that you have any memory, you were already programmed with a cookie cutter mosaic of traits from mama and papa and, and uncle and grandparents or student, you know, teachers and the police officer who yelled at you or the teacher who made you cry. All those things. Um, that's what you're coming. You're coming already with a very, very big bag of, uh, of traits that were adopted and installed in you. So the moment that you realize that you can start to separate from what you think mm. is you. And I think something of what you mentioned um, back in London, uh, some of this work there uh, with AR and so on, uh, it's a lot about separation. It's about inner separation. It's about having the perception of observe, observing the psychological traits that you are typically so attached to that you can't run away from them, that you're like taking them with you. Whereas if you can do psychoanalysis and start to objectively separate from yourself and not take everything as your identity, I think that's the path to true um, uh, inner peace and, and all these all these things. Mm, very interesting. Let's um, go into Virtue Leap a little bit. Um, and <laughs> yeah, no, I knew I knew if yeah. I continued on the psychoanalysis, we were really we were yeah. really off. We were we really were, off. <laughs> I love that. Really off track. But yeah, so in Virtue Leap, from what I understand, you guys look into three main categories. One, which I think is training your brain. Two, which is monitoring performance in different tasks. And then finally, or I'm sure there's more, but I thought those were the three main. And the third one, which was cognitive diagnostics. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to get into that a bit later on as well. Yeah, so the first one was... I mentioned training your brain. So obviously you mentioned it as well. Our cognition involves things like our attention, our memory, you know, auditory and visual processing, uh, which is one of the biggest things about VR, logic, reasoning, all of that kind of stuff. And you guys use games, right? For training your brain, different forms of games and using games have been done for quite a long time, right? I mean, there have been apps there like Lumosity, which I used to, you know, used to go on all the time. And even old regular old school games, you know, like crosswords or puzzles and memory games and all those things like that. So how does the games at Virtue Leap or, you know, VR games differ from those mm. games that I just mentioned to test our cognitive um, abilities? You know, so we're really... Um standing on the shoulders of, of Lumos Labs and Lumosity and, and a lot of these companies like mm. Peak and, and, and Brain HQ. It's like 30, 40 years of, of right. companies applying best practices and really pioneering the way, <clears throat> learning lessons like not marketing things that are not justified yet. The, the aspect of, of brain training, it's, you can't not say you're a brain training company because it's just so popularized, but it is... Uh, 
something you have to tiptoe around because mm. it may be therapeutic when it comes to ADHD. I have a lot of confidence that it's going to be in the next five years, very well uh, applied across even high schools for ADHD and learning challenges, especially with the whole thing we're talking about with TikTok and these game mechanisms that are now spread across every social media uh, platform there is. And it may be used even for depression because like we said, the relationship between ADHD and depression might be such that you could treat one by treating the other. Uh, I really, uh, we have studies coming up, exciting studies coming up where it's exactly about finding evidence for that, but you have to find evidence. You can't do shortcuts. You got to go the proper way. So when the therapeutic side of it is the, is the most interesting to me in the long term, but it's not something that I think companies can talk about too readily just yet. We have one study that shows uh, therapeutic effects for ADHD uh, for university students. We're going to have much more evidence coming up. I think the number one thing that high schools and companies with human performance programs, productivity and wellness programs should be looking at technologies like this is for the monitoring side of things. So we have enhanced VR. It has 15 of these exercises. If you play them and each one's about three minutes long, Mm. then you get basically a cognitive fingerprint a landscape report of you. It's like your fingerprint. This is how your shape of your cognition is represented. And I don't think that shape ever really mm. changes. Like if you're overdeveloped in one area, then it reflects how you're going to be overdeveloped, I think, indefinitely. You're going to see where you're underdeveloped. And I've never seen any evidence that you can um, change the shape of, of the egg that you are. Mm. I have a very low, for some reason, spatial orientation skills. People make fun of me. When I'm traveling on vacation, they go, they think I'm joking that I still, after seven days, don't know where the hell I'm going. It's like they think I have early cognitive illness or something. And then I'm like, you know, laughing about it a little bit, but it can hurt your feelings when someone makes fun of you like that. So I can have my report and you go, hey, don't make fun of my disability. And so, you know, there, uh, that spatial orientation category and motor control skills category and auditory category, those are not to be found in these screen-based versions of us. So that's the difference of what yeah. we are versus Alumos Labs. We have an extra dimension of, of profiling and opportunities for the therapeutics. They're just, they're like, it's like talking to a, a creature from the lower animal kingdom. You know, we're, we're the human version of them. They are, they are like this intermediary awkward moment where people actually think holding a device is going to be how people in 50 years are going to engage with digital technology. Yeah, right. They are the most awkward thing. We're gonna, they're going to laugh at us in 50 years and people still think, oh, I don't really believe when AR is going to be like, what are they talking about? We're so... We're so blind Mm. to the progress and the direction of technology. Technology will be invisible, but it needs to be also um, multi-sensory and ecologically valid. That's VR. Mm. So all our games are engaging multiple human systems. They, in every study, they show higher levels of, of retention, adherence, you know, comprehension, these are all things that for a screen-based device, it's just like 50% is the, is the best they can ever get in terms of adherence, for example. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, very well said. You published a paper, you mentioned like multi-sensory approach. I actually have it open somewhere here on a tab, but um, yes, there it is. It says it's called the a multi-sensory approach to cognitive training and monitoring. And I guess the main aspect, as you said, is to involve the user's body, you know, their the spatial orientation, <laughs> the one you're you're bad at, apparently, um, <laughs> the motor skills. Um, and yeah, as you're saying, to have a fully rounded, um, embodied experience. And when I was reading this paper, it made me remember an episode I did earlier with a cognitive neuroscientist. His name was um, Dr. Raphael Millier. And he basically spoke, um, he mentioned that him and his colleagues would get together and do like various sorts of um, VR experiences. And one of the examples that he gave was where I think either like you stand at the edge of a long building or um, you stand at the edge of a plank or something like that. And basically... <laughs> yeah, it's called plank. Oh, it's called... Okay, you know about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, literally called plank, yeah. Oh my gosh, it sounds like a nightmare. But he was saying basically you tell people to jump and he's like, and I'm pretty sure I would have done the same thing, but as I'm sure you know, people don't actually end up jumping. So what does this tell us? Well, this tells us that 
our brains are really tricked into believing that this virtual world is to some extent, you know, real. Um, so when we think of these tests and these games that you do, whatever it is, the context of the full body and an immersive experience can show how these games could truly be impactful, you know? So I think the immersive virtual reality gives us obviously a more effective way of like training um, your cognitive and, and motor abilities, all, all of that. It's, you know, if you, there's just no way that anyone, any person, uh, I have, I, there's always someone who will disagree for sure. But I just don't understand the argument that if you're engaging your, I mean, is, is cognition embodied or is it not? If it's embodied, then let's, let's, let's agree that maybe, maybe right now, maybe some people are technically speaking, not into the current state of VR. For example, the next device is going to be half the weight, the meta device mm. Quest 3 in the next few weeks is going to release and it's half the weight of the current Quest 2. Mm. So now a lot of people in the clinical front, they've been complaining maybe with weight issues. Now you got half the weight and you got twice the processing and you got even AR, augmented, augmented reality, also as a feature of this device. It's going to be huge, huge moment in this next uh, uh, season of ours. And Apple is about to release their first device in the exact same period. So this is the moment where you're going to see an explosive amount of very serious use cases, not just the trinkets. The virtual reality, it's not just the engagement. It's not just the application. It's not just all those things that are the front end of the technology. It's also the back end. We are collecting three dimensions of data in, com mm. in, in combination. So it's not just the psychometric data that the games are designed to collect, which is right. all that the screen-based devices collect. We're also collecting the XYZ, potentially <laughs> XYZ coordinates of the body. We can actually tell you the spinal alignment of the user. We can tell you, we can sense to such degrees of sensitivity, whether the hands are shaking or the knees are trembling. We can, um, uh, in fact, we, we support um, some special devices like the HP OmniSet that has physiological sensors like pupil dilation tracking, heart rate variability, skin connectivity. We're collecting about 250,000 data points every three minutes if all the lights are switched on. Okay, this is like, I, I think I'm using the word incorrectly, volumetric data sets, because that means something else in another context, but I'm going to use it. Like it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, huge data that has never been seen before. And we have one algorithm right now running in our system that tells you the cognitive load of the user. Uh, MIT ran a study last August, not, not, the, not yesterday, August, but the year before, mm -hmm. where they compared self-perception of effort levels versus what our cognitive load algorithm was stating based on the physiological sensors. So imagine the kind of AI learning algorithms that can look and mine that kind of wealth of data about a person's cognition, knowing that cognition reflects psychiatric and other aspects of the person as well. I mean, it's, it's profound in so many ways. If you don't want to be interested on, on the front end, then look at the back end. I mean, data scientists, machine learning experts, if you're hearing this, like this is an amazing frontier uh, that is not even being looked at by anyone. We're, we have like 60,000 early registered users, fully demographically profiled, yeah. all this data. And it's hard to even find right now those people who even know or are aware of the opportunities to, to start um, digging into this whole new frontier of digital biomarkers. Right. Yeah, honestly, I think that's one aspect of it that I find super, super exciting. The amount of data that is going to be and that is being collected over a given period of time. It's just such vast and rich information. Yeah. And I'm just so excited with what's going to come through it. Given that you will be collecting so much data, are you thinking of using that for, you know, research in the future? Um, <laughs> even to like, you know, change yeah. certain clinical interventions or, you know, policies and things like that. I'm sure in the long term, like in a decade, there's probably going to be so much information that could possibly shift the way we maybe even see certain things about brain health and cognitive and psychiatric disorders. Who knows, right? Data is, is really the most important part for me. I think beyond the therapeutic applications of it, I think the data side, um, connecting with sleep data on your smartwatches that are historical, uh, we, we, we collect some self-reported data. We know that people, when you sleep less than six hours, for example, there's certain specific patterns that show up of cognitive deficits. We see those relationships. 
but it's, you know, it's a matter of resources and dedicated to certain projects. We have data as like a secondary and kind of a sidekick aim of some of the studies we have already ongoing right now in the US and here in Europe, um, planned also in India and in Asia for some partners we have there coming up. So it's exciting, but it's never the primary use case that we're trying to look at. And I think sometimes it's a chicken and the egg. You have to find the right institutional partner that has that aim, that agenda, and then they want to work with us. We're like not, I'm a really bad CEO uh, up till now because I don't prioritize the money side. <laughs> I don't look, I'm not contacting researchers to get anything from them except, you know, champions on that side who want to work with us to further some particular research aim. The research aim is where the pure heart of this technology is. It's where that keeps me still kind of sane and and good person inside. If I was only looking at all the mm. you know capitalistic intentions and people who are trying to just be uh, gold rushers and so on, uh, I'm 39 as of this uh, this summer. Um, I don't really just want to do the things that that matter. And this technology can teach us things about ourselves that that I think is even the most important aspect of it touch wood. You don't look a day older than 30. So I actually did touch wood. So excuse if you heard like a random knock, but <laughs> I heard something. I heard something and I just went, yeah. <laughs> it's very, uh, very, Euro uh, very uh, Spanish uh, or, or even Iranian. Uh, that was nice. Thank you. Yeah. By the way, Amir, I'm going to ask you a question. You know, obviously collecting data could be something that's personal to, you know, a number of people, not everyone, but to some people. I mean, we all like accept all these apps without even reading terms and conditions. So, hey, who knows? <laughs> but I'm just generally curious when people sign up or when people use um, these tests and these games, do they know that these data points are being collected? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the world we're in now, right? Mm. These, these social media powers that be have completely r ruined it for all the good doers out there on the research and health side, trying to protect your kids from ADHD. Now you got to go, you know, Oh my God, uh, are they going to like, are they going to copy my, my cognition and create a clone version of me on Mars? You know, some crazy conspiracy theory pops up and it's right. all legitimate concerns. Um, we've had to follow working with AWS, for example, our server hosting partners, we we've had to follow the, the, the most severe levels of, of best practices to follow HIPAA compliancy, uh, separating servers, uh, encrypting one from the other in all the ways that, that you have to do or else you actually subject to huge fines. Even from the, even if I'm an evil person, uh, commercially speaking, I have to do it just to not get a fine of 250K potentially, right? Huge fines. So, okay, even if I'm an evil person, I have some checks and balances of the system that people can realize are there. Companies like Microsoft and IBM and Amazon and Google, they're all on the server hosting side. Of, they take that very seriously on, on that one end, right? On the other, there's GDPR in Europe, of course, with how you can do things. Uh, in the other sides are the soft practices, like, you know, you put in those, those uh, disclaimers. Um, with some of our partners, Research Front, we have secondary disclaimers as well. Every time they play again, They're not just when they register, but every time they play, they have to be shown it again. Um, in the context of saving those data points, we can do whatever we know to be the rules to do. I mean, like you can do it all, but I'm telling you, we're technology is a double-edged sword. There's going to be plenty of companies that are not caring about this. I've, I meet them at these conferences. Everyone should be worried about this question. Mm -hmm. All I can say is that our interests, um, our personal interests are, are for using this technology in the right way. And we follow all the best practices possible. Um, and, and I hope there will be what's lacking in this industry is is policymakers that are that are they're, they're so slow the government policymakers and also government should never be involved in it because they're so bad at what they do what i've learned for sure is they are the slowest they are not up to date they are so mismanaged they, they uh the larger an entity is the, the 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 less human they are individually in terms of like you know individual intelligence at play they have to like you know what i'm trying to say it's like an elephant moving an elephant so so we're kind of screwed in some extent people have to be very diligent about this they have to know the companies that are out there um i can i can i can say what i say and people can do you know their own due diligence but they better because vr systems are now going to be out in play and we know there's been uh, situations where data is being collected even if those disclaimers are used 
data is being collected that mm. in the entertainment industry, they might be using that data with special algorithms to know exactly things about you that are even next level. So there's no, my point of view is that there is no way that we're going to not hit those problems. For anyone who wants to like sleep well at night because they think that's not going to happen, forget it. You know, it's only getting worse. Um, when you, for example, just to scare some some of your audience, if you if an algorithm learns something uh, with your smartphone or with a facial recognition software or uh, with a VR uh, content like we're creating, and an algorithm learns that, they can also take that intelligence and one day move it into security cameras and then know things about a person based on the gait of their walking and all sorts of things that we don't realize that our body already says Shit. about our psychology. You know, it's it's both directions. And um, I answered your question from my point of view, but I wanted to just let you know that's a concern of mine too. And um, we got to just tread carefully as we go. Double Technologies are always a double-edged sword. They are a double-edged sword. And thank you. That was actually a very helpful answer. And I think you couldn't be more right. Thank you for scaring all of us. No, no, I'm kidding. I, um, <laughs> I, I think it is, as you said... <laughs> It is um, to be expected. I mean, have you ever had a time when you're like sitting with a friend or, you know, a colleague or whatever, and you mention something like, oh, I'm so hungry. I wish we could get, you know, X, Y, and Z. Or, And then the next thing you see, it freaking pops up as an ad and you're like, wait, oh, yeah. what is going on? I feel like, yeah, sometimes these, the we don't know if we call them coincidences, but you're absolutely right. These like, no, they're, they're not coincidences that everyone's talking about it. I was talking about like, I don't know. Uh, a pumpkin for some reason or some some stupid like then i'm getting ads who gets ads for a pumpkin okay i'm just saying okay it wasn't really a pumpkin but like it's just a it's a stupid coincidence it's not a normal coincidence it's like a stupid one it's like that ad is only being shown to like 10 people in the world just based on audio (laughs) recognition software on my hey google device no google i'm not talking to you don't say anything see like it's right there it's listening And maybe I'm going to get, you know, uh, advertising based on some of the topics we discussed. (laughs) You let me know if that that becomes the case. (laughs) Well, you mentioned ADHD a couple of times. um, And you mentioned also that you wrote a paper on ADHD. And I'm happy to link it to this episode description because I actually read that paper and I found that paper very interesting and very promising. And one thing that I found very interesting was that ADHD is, you know, obviously classified as when there's inability to pay attention or concentrate and things like that. But you in the study, from what I remember, um, at least, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that you focused on two main aspects, one which was um, processing speed, so how fast someone um, can respond to any given task, so from one of the tasks at Virtually, and then the second one was working memory, so part of our memories that can hold things temporarily in our mind. So think of when you get like a authentication code and you know you have to like remember that code for a short period of time, so that, for example, would be classified as a working memory. And there have been tests Uh, sorry, there have been studies recently that have shown that executive functioning, so working memory is a part of executive functioning, other parts of executive functioning is like decision making, you know, planning, all of that um, are impacted in people with um, ADHD. So your study actually, rather than looking at concentration, for example, focused on executive functioning, well, one aspect of it, which was working memory and processing speed. So yeah, uh, I think the study was very promising. So I'd love if you could, you know, briefly maybe get into that, um, you know, tell us a bit about the study and maybe what's exciting about it for you as well. Sure. Like you start with some of these therapeutic use cases, these therapeutic areas, but it's not you that's starting it. Virtually, in fact, we don't, we look for partners that they want to do it independently of us. And then at, at some of these publications, we're also added as authors. Okay. Um, I tried to say no, but my my neuroscientist says it's, you have to do it in, in this particular use case of these pilots. And so I'm like, you know, I, I want to separate, I, I would love to separate any study that has any involvement with us, because if I was the person reading it, I wouldn't want um, a dairy farm association to be connected to a study that says dairy is safe, you know, or or something like that, you know, tobacco company, you know, I don't know. I just feel like I I shouldn't be connected to it. But this study was not ours. It was run by P Porto, an institute in Porto, Portugal. 
Porto, Portugal. Right. Sounds weird. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, north of Liz Lisbon, the capital is this lovely romantic uh, city called Porto. The, the tourism authority can thank me. They have this really cool neuroscience division at, at this institute, this at this uh, polytechnical institute, and they were reaching out to us with that. You know, most of our studies is because someone found out about us and then they reached out to us and they were one of them. And then they go, Hey, can we do this study? Uh, and it happened to be in, in the area that we were looking for as well. Um, and, so cool. and it's just the initial pilot to see initial evidence. It didn't have any positive indications for working memory. It only showed some positive results in terms of processing speed, but enough promising results to indicate uh, it's time to do bigger scale studies. And if you look at the screen-based, um, as I'll call them, inferior versions of us in the screen-based uh, side of things, like, like um, <laughs> Achille Interactive has two now products pretty much the same two products, but one's focused on kids with ADHD, eight to 12 years old, and one for adults. They're now like reimbursable solutions on the market. They're um, they're showing great promise for, for ADHD. We're just versions of them that has a higher dimension to it, right? Um, uh, there's no doubt in my head that the next study has to be much, much um, broader in terms of population. It's only about 26 students. It was a really short period of time, only about a month of usage. So I really do, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, um, you know, this is just kind of like a, a dipping your toe in the, yeah. in the pool, you know? And, and, and so the next steps are, are where the promise really is. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think um, taking this into a much bigger, um, whether that's a bigger, larger population, or exactly like you said, like instead of I think the study had ten sessions done, so instead of ten, like having twenty sessions, and then maybe doing like a follow up after like six months, you know. But the point is that there's so much potential there, which is very exciting because right now one of the frontline treatments for ADHD, as I'm sure you probably know, is psychiatric drugs, like things like, you know, Ritalin and Adderall yeah. and things. So if we could use virtual reality instead, I mean, for me, that's just such a great, you know, great thing. It is, it is so scary, the US right now. I mean, I, so when I visit there and I go to, um, uh, I went to one uh, party um, and I see this, this lady who's taking Adderall, like it's a party thing. It is... And, and she actually, when I started talking to her about it, she did not like me. Oh, sure. uh, I was asking questions like, is there any long-term implications of taking this stuff? Do you think, you know, she said, absolutely no, that's just, you know, they're, they're, you know, this is like the, 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 the most wrong way to go. And this is the ultimate wrong way to go, that this is actually approved in, in, at this scale to give right. drugs to people as kind of first, what is it? It's the first line of defense is prescribing a biochemistry oriented solution that alters you in ways you don't even realize because every 50 years we say how the doctors were idiots back then prescribing cigarettes and alcohol and, and dark right. beer to, to pregnant women, right? It's got things like that. It's crazy. It's absolute nonsense. This is an insane asylum, this planet right now, at least the United States is when it comes to those kinds of applications. Scary, man. You're, you're totally right. The, wait, was she diagnosed with ADHD or she was just taking it? I, she, I mean, does it even like, I want to know, I want to just put like a secret camera, go to a clinic in the US, wherever she went. And what do you have to say to get it? You know, like, what do you have to do? You have to really be diagnosed. <laughs> I, I don't think you have to be diagnosed. I think you, you even have, maybe your friend who you also go and party with in Burning Man, which by the way, is happening right now. So I bet you, I promise you there's a lot of Adderall along with everything else over there, you know? And, and I've met a lot of people at Burning Man. A lot of them happen to be dentists, which is what? weird. But, um, so you know, random. yeah, there's, they're, but, they're, but a lot of them are medical professionals in this, you know, psychedelic world and stuff like that. I, don't, I think they're just prescribing it to each other. It's like self-medicating. You know? it's, 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 uh, it's not being self-medicating. It's quick fixes. And then there's wild uh, bouts of depression and withdrawal symptoms in one future day that we don't want to think about where the, the re you know, the, there's always a price to pay. You know, and I, I also the psychedelic world, mm -hmm. I'm also very, very, I don't want to say this because it's so popular right now and I'll lose like an investor just by saying this, but everyone's after the quick fix <laughs> of everything and it's getting worse. You know, no one, no, we're losing the interest in hard work, except like maybe in direction of physical labor and, and having the best abs and stuff like that for for veins, vanity's purposes, but they just want quick fixes. And I think we're going to have a very rude awakening coming up.
Honestly, I'm very much on the same boat right now with the direction that it's going. It almost feels like big pharma is just going to take over this space again. And it's again, all going to be about you know, the money rather than healing people. So yeah. I think there is a place for psychedelics. But again, because it's becoming popular so quickly, I don't know how successful these right. treatments and therapies are actually going to be. Because as you said, the most important part is the aftermath of it, which is the work, right? The integration part, as they call it in the psychedelic space. 10 years ago, I went to Peru. I went to Iquitos. I did two, three months mm. of ayahuasca. I'm no like uh, enemy of that group, but it's, it's it, it, you know, I was seeing people using it never for party purposes. They were using it because they had an anxiety disorder. And a guy came from Australia just as his last ditch resort effort to, to cure himself. They were artists, they were intellectual people. That's cool. But when you start relying on something, I think if you have depression or something and you can use uh, a, um, a particular remedy for a particular period of time, and then stop. You know, I think things cannot become crutches, permanent crutches. That is not, I think, a healthy way of looking at anything. Yeah, very well said. Very quickly, and last point on this. Um, <laughs> again, we're going off topic, but um, I was talking to a psychiatrist. I also mentioned antidepressants being quick fixes. And he's like, that is a common misconception. They're actually not quick fixes. And why? Because they're actually so damaging to our, they could be potentially so damaging. So they're actually not fixes at all. So he's like, oh, yeah, no. it's very, it's, it's unfortunate. And cause he's like, they are in retrospect, they are a quick fix, but we don't actually know what they're doing internally. So the fix maybe may not be a fix at all, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes me think of that new TV show, uh, painkiller, you know, going Ooh. into the, you should, if you haven't watched it, it's really yeah. well done. And, um, you know, it's all about the, the whole opioid, uh, uh pandemic, crisis, epidemic. I forget yeah. which one it is a crisis. Yeah. And, um, I think that's, that's the, that's the thing we have to always wonder what, what a hundred years from now, which one of these areas that we think are correct or actually incorrect and how are devastating, not just yeah. incorrect, they're devastating. And I think that this is, this is the area. I, I really don't want to like talk to the devil and ask if he's got anything more. I think we need to heal for this before a new wave of something else comes, but who knows? Yeah. Who knows? No, you're absolutely right. During this conversation, you mentioned something which I found super interesting. You said, um, do you know, you were talking about the lady you met at the party who was diagnosed with eight, or maybe she was not, but anyway, you said, <laughs> do you even need to get a diagnosis at this point? Like you can just go and tell people that, you know, you you know, you have, you're have an inability to concentrate. So I feel like right. this is where virtual reality and perhaps what you guys do may come in. Um, in the beginning, I mentioned cognitive diagnostics and I said, I want to get into that a little bit later. So I'm just coming back to that. In virtually, in your context in particular, what do you guys mean by cognitive diagnostics? Does it mean that in the future, these technologies and technologies like VR could help both in terms of preventative measures, but also in terms of like giving more accurate and objective diagnostic criteria. So for example, um, measuring someone's inability, concentration mm. levels and things like that. So enhanced VR is more of a monitoring and potentially a therapeutic tool, but only therapeutic when there's a deficit. Okay. Um, in deficits like ADHD, or maybe, you know, you had traumatic brain injury or, or something, something that there's a deficit like memory fog, long COVID, chemo brain. Uh, it, monitoring can be an assessment in and, in and of itself when you use it regularly, right? You can see how maybe you slept badly and it drops. It's a kind of a weird word of assessment, but diagnostic enhanced VR is not. And um, we have a second product we're basically just doing the finishing touches to in partnership with Roche and a hospital partner, Lucia Dash in Portugal, where it is, it's called CogniClear. I think that's the name we're going to stick with. It is a 30 minute, hopefully less than 30 minute Diagnose screening tool for not just mild cognitive impairment, but hopefully because of the because of the level of data that we're collecting with VR, maybe sensitive enough to even detect uh, subjective cognitive decline. So that's our first foray as a diagnostic. But yes, I think the the most critical um, special thing about everything we've created is the backend side. Can algorithms and so on, all that data mine through and find those particular biomarkers to tell us something about our cognition that might be very, very deeply hidden currently in 
VR has access to it because of the depth of, and wealth of data. However, these tools even currently are not diagnostics in and of themselves. They can only be tools that inform a neurologist to then they, to inform their diagnosis of a person. So even in the current market, there's no real, I mean, as far as I know from cognition, you can only help inform a neurologist or a cognitive scientist or a doctor of some sort to um, diagnose. Super interesting. I did want to ask about negative impacts or side effects of VR technologies. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I feel like I had to put it in there. I but, love this um, question. Really? Well, you know, uh, about five, six years ago, there was uh, devices that they called VR, but they weren't VR. They were basically 3D viewers, which had <laughs> no interaction with you. So they weren't virtual reality. They were like put on a 3D viewer. And these yeah. 3D viewers, they were called, there were three degrees of freedom devices, 3DOF. They were so popular because they were cheaper. And I was the biggest opponent of them. And no one listened to me because they're making money. You know, whenever you're making money, just mm -hmm. shut that person up who's annoyed that they're even using this word VR. I had this like, you know, really annoying voice. I'm like, that's not me. Um, and uh, they would do roller coaster experiences with this 3D viewer, which has no haptic or visceral component to your body having a relationship. Mm -hmm. So the nausea that was created was obvious because you're not having the, the roller coaster ride is going up and down. Your body needs to feel the traction of, of those movements, right? The, yeah. the gyration, the, the, it, none of that was inputted. So there was so much nausea and also the frames per second of the technology of these crappy 3D viewers was really not up to par with what you need as well for, you know, for resolution um, requirements of, of, of what can cause our systems to kind of go, Ooh, there's something wrong with the matrix here. I'm going to create the impulse of nausea, you know, and discomfort. And a lot of the creators that were showcasing their content in conferences, they were just creating the crappiest things to, to put in their booths. You know, it's just like, and I, I hope none of them are listening to this because I hope they're all gone into some other new crypto company or <laughs> Web3, whatever next buzzword they can go find, you know, the buzzword chasers. Um, you, you know, what we create our technology, <laughs> when we create our technology, we have an accessibility design expert right at the beginning that has to uh, uh, see what the tolerability tests show us what is the usability right right now for CogniClear at the hospital we keep going to the patients and testing it with them these are not general general healthy uh, individuals that we're testing it with so they're they're going to have grip problems with the controllers they need to help with how how's the tutorial work does uh, our our application has accessibility settings so for color blindness uh whether you're you need the font size to increase or not light dark you know light the, the dark settings um it our games are designed to adapt whether you're standing or sitting these were like of utmost importance to us. And it took us three and a half years to even release our software because we were working with institutes in the US to keep doing tolerability tests. So it sucks when you see a company in our space just make a lot of money and they didn't even like do a lot of those tests because they went to the right hot tub party with an investor that gave them a check. You know, it's just like, it's amazing. You, you get, we can't do shortcuts in, in VR and there has to be ethical standards uh, applied to the design of everything because you can, you can create a phobia as well yeah. in VR, not just cure one, right? Yeah, like, maybe, you know, if I really go evil, maybe, um, I don't know, something weird happens in my brain, I'll, I'll make a VR torture device uh, for military organizations, just like a Black Mirror episode <laughs> because I guarantee you, you can do that really well, you know? And I think there's a... There's a show. I, I'm a little bit, uh, I, I think I need to stop watching so much, but I love sci-fi yeah. shows and Altered Carbon is this nice one in Netflix. The first season they had the VR, but not, not real VR. <laughs> like, you know, people say VR, but this stuff is not VR like the Matrix VR, yeah. right? It, that's more like uh, Elon Musk coming into this industry and giving us those neurochips and then real. This is like, this is like, um, mediocre VR, even though it's awesome. And I'm in that industry of awesomeness, but it's mediocre. You're just tricking the eyes, right. right? What about the other sensor, sensory sides of it? Right. And that's, that's a, uh, that's a difference. Wow. I love that. Thank you for that. And I didn't know that you actually like work with a range of people so that you can test their tolerability. I think that's so important. And yeah, it now is, I'm very, yeah. it is because, you know, honestly, there's a part of me that would love to not have to do that, but you just, you yeah. don't have a choice. 
you have to do it. You, you, you can't, you can't have any chance of a bad experience. You have to have maximum comfort as the number one rule of designing this stuff. This is VR is not to be trifled with as just content that some, you know, kid creates and then publishes on the store that's available to someone who has a particular, I don't know, neural chemical inclination that we don't even really understand right now. And it causes an issue in someone I, we're, we're really probing into the unknown in some ways. And so there needs to be a lot more um, regulation in terms of um, checking the content beyond just performance sides. Yeah. You know, when you're shooting a zombie in VR and it's okay, working well in their technical test, that's, that's not enough. We have to see like that plank uh, scenario that application. Right. I'm surprised no one's had a heart attack yet. I promise you, when we we're gonna start having stories of people having heart attacks in, in VR because of these content, and then you're gonna uh, and your face. Oh, I'm sorry. Your eyes just like <laughs> lifted up. You're like, what? I was like, never no, like, doing that's that. That's the case, <laughs> right? But like, yeah. how how do you not know that you're not? Maybe you have a few drinks at some person's party. They're like, hey guys, I got a plank. Oh, you know, because this yeah. experience, it's really well done when you bring an actual physical plank. So you're walking on top of a plank, not just because people who walk on it, it's a whole different experience when you're walking right. on a piece of a plank. That's this right measurements. And that kills you. That's a trip. <sighs> yeah. And what if you do trip and you're, oh, yeah, if you you're, do trip, as you know, well. <laughs> right. You, so things to be wary of, but know that companies like us exist that actually take it seriously. And neuroscientists on our team are extremely serious people about this stuff. That's the only reason sure. I, I, I have hope about the world is when you talk to researchers and scientists who actually give a shit. That's, that's, the, that's what gives me hope. Yeah, I, I really love that. I'm going to ask a very silly question. If someone wants to now try out and test out mm. virtually just a, a, in a consumer, can, can they do so? And then would they have to buy a VR headset or... Yeah, you'd have to. We support every VR major headset that's available. Mm -hmm. I would recommend the the Meta device. I wouldn't be worried about all that data stuff we talked about because ever since that those stories came out some years ago, uh, what I know for sure and I can attest to is that data collection practices are of the highest quality now over there. You know, when you get your hands slapped, wrist slapped, sorry, you basically yeah. you know become the opposite, and they are that. They're like the I think they're the most secure one to be on, and they're also the most affordable. And the best best quality. Um, I wouldn't use some of the. Uh, I think if those guys hear me right now, I hope they don't. Um, but there's other manufacturers, but they are from other countries. I won't name those countries, but um, you know, where are the servers? Right, the data collection thing. Mm. I mean, Meta's servers are in the U.S., where we at least have a lot of policies on this stuff. Regulation is the strongest in Western Europe and and the U.S. If you're buying a headset with ownership somewhere not in these areas, let's keep that in mind, right? right. Um, but but Meta is the device I would get. It's about, I think, 400 bucks or so. I think it's very worth the investment if you're into this stuff. And our application is completely free. So it's called Enhanced VR. You can download it for free as a consumer. We make our money more on the B2B side of giving it to organizations. Yeah, super cool. Um, I guess since I'm quite wary of time, Amir, as a final, maybe two questions. Um, first, um, you know, has there been any exciting success stories? It could even be, I don't know, a personal one um, in this journey. And then what do you hope for, uh, for the future for these technologies, which I think some we did discuss already, but at least what do you hope for Virtue Leap in the next few years? I think Apple coming into the market is going to be a very big thing for everyone. It's an inflection point. Mm. They are already developing more, from what I understand, uh, more devices. The first one is really just their entry into the whole ecosystem. But when uh, when they come in, they come in with a lot of preparation. They don't really just test the waters with this first device. They're, they've really planned it. And it's a big win for the industry because it means there's a whole new hype cycle. What we call it hype cycles. This is about to hit starting probably by the last quarter of this year, you'll start to feel it. And the wins are going to be more on very use, you know, serious use cases like productivity and wellness and fitness. I think on the, there's been about 7,000 studies, at least that I'm aware of worldwide on VR's therapeutic and serious use cases, applications and peer reviewed studies. And that's like across Japan to India, to, to Iran, to, to all sorts of countries all around the world. And that's something that's a lot of unsung heroes of all that academia kind of coming together 
to show all these amazing use cases. A lot of the biggest wins are the ones that are not reported because those institutes or research teams don't have PR agencies working for them. And so TechCrunch and, and The Verge doesn't report on them because, you know, the most of the stories you guys, we all get are unfortunately uh, through a very biased chain of, of, of money being handed over to each other. But yeah. if you, you know, want to look for wins and it's, you got to Google VR plus keywords and you're going to see so many amazing use cases that have been ignored. Um, two, three years ago, the, the, the journalist would say VR is dead. And they said that five years before that. And they said that, you know, they, they, they're not to be trusted what you read in the, in the, the, the media internet. I feel like I'm Donald Trump all of a sudden. Uh, it, it's like, it, it's like, you got, you got to look at the academia. You got to go straight for the papers, you know, and, right. and which ones are over magnified. That's where I'm saying the bias is. And I was going to say fake news or anything. It's just, uh, they bias things, you know? Um, and, and, and Apple meta serious use cases, schools across the world being using this. I know it's going to happen. And this is the year that you're going to see what I think is, is a really strong, inflection point, a very strong next chapter for the industry. Yeah, that's super, super exciting. Amir, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I honestly had so much fun. I feel like I laughed way too much. Just such a fun and insightful episode. And as I said already, it's such excellent work. You should be very proud of yourselves. And I'm very excited to see where your journey will take you further, but also and mainly how people will hopefully be helped with it um, moving forward. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I had a, a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. If you did like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and family. I will be linking Virtue Leap's website to this episode description along with Amir's profile. So do check it out further. If interested, I highly recommend you do so. Thank you again, and we'll catch you in the next episode.